We've got, um, we've got a real treat for, you, for us this morning, and there is so much to get through. So I'm going to try and hammer as fast as I can to get through all of this. But I want to start by asking you an impossible hypothetical question. I realize that's probably laboring the definition of hypothetical, making it an impossible hypothetical. But I, I want you to know that this really is an impossible hypothetical question. The question is this. What difference would it make to your life if God were to withdraw the Holy Spirit from you? What difference would it make to your life if God were to withdraw the Holy Spirit from you? Now, I say that's an impossible hypothetical. That's important. I mean, David in Psalm 51, he cried that out to God, didn't he not? Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. But that is a question that you will never have to face if you're a child of God. Because according to Ephesians 1, the Spirit is a seal and a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. And so we are never posed with that question. For those of you who wrestle with assurance, please don't let this question erode your faith. But let's just entertain the question for a second. What difference would it make to your life if God were to withdraw the Holy Spirit from you? Sadly, I think for many, most of us might answer, well, not all that much. Not all that much. Or even more sad, nothing at all. But I want you to notice this morning the difference that the Spirit of God makes in the life of the, of the disciples, of the early church, of the apostles. These are men who just days prior to Pentecost were cowering in fear in the upper room of the, of the Romans and the Jewish leaders. And then just a few days later, because of the empowering presence of the Spirit, are boldly and courageously declaring the good news of Jesus. That is the difference that the Spirit of God, the empowering presence of God makes in the lives of these people and ought to make in our lives as well. So I'm going to pray that God by His Spirit would give us a vision of what it looks like to be His people filled with His Spirit, speaking the good news of Jesus to a city. Yeah? Join me. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need You now. We pray that You might illuminate the truth of the Scriptures to our hearts this morning. Please show us what it looks like to walk to step into the mission that Jesus has called us to, empowered. God, help us. So often we're self-sufficient. We're not dependent. God, I pray that you would convict and transform us by your scriptures this morning. Change us by your spirit, we pray. All those who agreed said, amen. Amen. All right, Luke, I mean Acts, written by Luke. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. A bit of a context here. This moment that we're going to look at today is what is called Pentecost. Now, Pentecost just means 50th, and it's a celebration or feast that happened 50 days after the Passover. So 50 days after Christ's death on the cross, the Jewish community would celebrate what is the Feast of Weeks or the Festival of the Harvest. And that is the moment that we step into here in Acts chapter 2, and it is called Pentecost. So... Acts chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to do a lot of reading today, so track with me. The verses will be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. They're drunk. So what a powerful moment. This is the moment that they have been waiting for. Remember last week as we looked at the early church, waiting, waiting prayerfully. This is that moment when Jesus promised, I will clothe you with, with power from on high. And it is unmistakable that this moment is the thing that Jesus had promised. It's unmistakable because we have three sensory signs that this moment has taken place. There is a sound, there is a sight, and then there is speech. Firstly, there is this sound, like a, it says it's like a mighty rushing wind. It's like a tornado has blown through the room that they were meeting in. So loud is this that the people, the crowd, hear it and are drawn to see what is taking place. This, this tornado blows through, this wind comes. Then there is this sight of tongues as of fire. So it's not literal, it kind of looks like it. And we don't quite know exactly what it looked like, but it's kind of like that, that separate and divide and come to rest on each of the apostles. Now what is happening in this moment? I'll tell you what is happening. God is showing up. Wind, fire. They are all tangible physical symbols of the presence of an invisible God. And we ought to know that. I mean, just cast your mind back to Exodus chapter 3 as God appears to Moses in the form of what? A burning bush, a fire. Or you think about the fire, the pillar of fire that, that guided and led God's people through the wilderness as they traveled for 40 years. Or cast your mind to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where he says the Spirit of God is like a wind that blows. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. Wind and fire are symbols of God's presence, of His power and of His purity. What is happening in this moment is that God is declaring, I have come. I have arrived the Spirit is being poured out just like Jesus promised. And the power of the Spirit is essential for Christ's mission, the mission that He has given to the disciples. And I mean, we've seen this pattern already. Just think about Jesus in Luke chapter 3. He comes with the disciples to John the Baptist. 
He's baptized in the Jordan River. And as he comes out of the river, it is said that the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove in the form of a dove. That the voice from heaven comes and says, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm pleased. And then Jesus is sent out in the power of the Spirit to begin his three-year teaching, preaching and healing ministry. All of that empowered by the Spirit of God. And so we see Jesus being filled and then sent. And we see the apostles here being filled and then sent. And my question for us, church, is if Jesus needed to be filled and sent and the apostles needed to be filled and sent, then how much more us? We need the empowering presence of the Spirit to fulfill the Great Commission, the mission that Jesus has given us. But there is one final sign that is given here of the presence of God, and that is the sign of speech, of tongues, of languages that these apostles speak. Now we know that it's a language, and this is probably distinct from the gift of tongues that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 and some of the other scriptures in the New Testament. But we know that this was a known language because it says there that all of these people, multitudes of people from all over the known world, have come to descend upon the city of Jerusalem. It was said that in the first century that the population of Jerusalem could swell five to six times its normal size during Pentecost. This was a significant festival for God's people. And so there are people here who speak all sorts of languages who have descended upon Jerusalem and they hear the praises of God in their mother tongue. And so what is happening here is that these disciples, these apostles are speaking languages that they didn't learn. They're speaking all of these foreign languages that people from all over the world know and hear. It says they're in their own mother tongue. What, what is also crazy about this, uh, and you kind of need to know a bit of the historical context here, is that they're perplexed and amazed because it says they're Galileans. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, Galilee was kind of like a bit of a, I don't know how to put it nicely, but a bit of a bogan town. And um, they were known to speak funny. You know, like they, they, they dropped words and, and, and they just they had a bit of a vernacular about them. And so I kind of imagine this the equivalent of a real Oka Aussie all of a sudden instantly being able to speak French. And instead of saying something like parlez-vous français, they're like parlez-vous français. And they speak fluent French, but it's just got this Galilean, um, this, this ochre twang to it. And these guys are perplexed and amazed because they hear these Galileans, they can detect the tone of their accent speaking fluently in their mother tongue. This is an amazing miracle. I remember hearing a teaching by Jeff Vanderstelt of Soma Communities he was telling a story of a time that he was preaching cross-culturally in another country and he was preaching with the assistance of a translator. And midway through his sermon, he noticed that the translator had stopped translating his sermon. So he turned to him and said, why have you stopped translating? And the translator said back to him, well, you're speaking fluently the language. I don't need to anymore. That is the miracle that has taken place here. The disciples and apostles are able to speak a language that they did not learn. That is profound. Now, I mean, we could spend hours unpacking the theology of tongues, and we don't have time for that today. So I'm going to point you back to a sermon that Brian preached last year in our Presence and Power series on the Holy Spirit, 
where he unpacks all of our theology of speaking in tongues. But what I want you to notice here is that what is happening is this profound reversal of Babel. And Jared Wilson alerted to the, us to this a few weeks ago where he said, what is happening in this moment is, if you think of Babel, this is earth trying to strive for heaven and heaven confusing language. Where in the, in the moment of Pentecost, you have heaven coming down to earth and untangling the curse of Babel. This is a profoundly theological moment that is happening here. And if you think about it, the purpose that Jesus has given for the outpouring of this power in Acts 1 verse 8, that you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, it almost takes place instantly here in chapter 2. Because here are these people from all over the world who have descended upon Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They hear the gospel, they believe, and then they take that back to the corner of the Roman Empire that they're from and they share it. This is a profound, strategic, God-appointed moment here in Acts chapter 3. And these three signs that are given are clear demonstrations that God has arrived, that the Spirit has been poured out like Jesus promised. But the deal is not everyone's convinced. You notice there in verse 13, it says, Some of them said, they've had too much new wine. They've had a few too many drinks, right? And so Peter takes this mocking as an opportunity for the gospel. So let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. Come on. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And it will be shown, and, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed them by the hands of lawless men. And Peter is saying, you've got to understand what's happening here. They're not drunk. We're not drunk. What you are witnessing and seeing is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that he would pour out his spirit on all and that they would prophesy. Joel foresaw a moment where the spirit of God would be dispensed permanently and universally amongst God's people. You see, in the old covenant, the Holy Spirit was only given to a few and only given for a season. You think about Moses in Numbers. He's charged with the duty of dragging God's people out of slavery and into the promised land. And there they are wandering the wilderness and everything's going bad, and Moses is out of his depth. 
And so he appoints 70 leaders, 70 elders to help him with the task of leading all of God's people. And God takes some of the spirit that he has given to Moses and he puts it on the 70 elders and they, they prophesy as a sign that they too have the spirit of God. And that they are appointed to be leaders amongst God's people. And then what happens is a couple of the guys are still prophesying and Joshua overhears it and he says to Moses, tell them to stop. And in Numbers 11.29, it says this. This is Moses speaking. He says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. See, what Moses desired was that all of God's people would receive the spirit, that all of God's people would be mediators of his word. And what Moses desired, the prophet Joel prophesied and Pentecost realizes that the Spirit is poured out on all and prophecy is the sign that that has happened. This moment here is an epoch era shifting moment as we move from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament to the New Covenant. Now the difference between the Old Covenant and the New is this. Under the Old Covenant, the Spirit was given specifically and temporarily. Under the New Covenant, the Spirit is given permanently and universally. Under the Old Covenant, the Spirit was given specifically, that is to a few people, generally the prophets who would be the mouthpiece of God. But in the New Covenant, the Spirit would be given to all people, men and women, young and old, slave and free. Under the Old Covenant, the Spirit would be given temporarily. It would be taken away or could be taken away. That's why David cries out in Psalm 51, Lord, take not your Spirit. But under the New Covenant, the Spirit is given permanently. He resides in us. He is our seal, our deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. He is the one with whom Jesus promises fulfilled that I will be with you always. The Spirit of God now is given permanently and universally to all. And that's what Peter says by quoting that prophecy from Joel 2 in verse 17. He says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit. That is, I will drench you with it, that there will be this overflow of the Spirit on all flesh, sons and daughters, Young men, old men, slaves, male slaves, female female slaves, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. Peter is suggesting to the crowd, what you have just witnessed in this miracle of us speaking in languages that we have not learned is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. We are stepping into a new era, the era of the spirit. But the question is, what is the prophecy As we look through the book of Acts, we don't really have that many occurrences of prophecy occurring. There's only a few, and it seems like it's not universal. I mean, you get to the end of Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people get saved. There's no mention of them prophesying as they receive the Spirit and are baptized. And so what I think is happening here is Peter is using this word prophecy in the broadest sense of the term. Not specifically an office, but a function. And what he is What he's seeing happening here is that in the Old Covenant, the few who would mediate the the Word of God to the people, that is the prophets, are now all of us in the New Covenant. That there is this expectation that everyone who has received the Spirit will then mediate the Word of God, 
will be heralds of the good news of the gospel. And so I see what we think what I think we see happening with the the priest and the king language in 1 Peter 2:9 that we are now a royal priesthood where kings and priests that in fact God's people his covenant community are also prophets that we would be the means by which God would mediate his word his will his good news to the world and Peter says that is what you see happening Now the question is, is this moment here a repeatable pattern that we should expect to see happening? That is, should we expect to see people come to faith in Jesus and then at some point later, a subsequent point to that, be baptized with the Holy Spirit? And I don't think that's the case. I don't think that is a repeatable pattern that we see in Scripture for this reason. The apostles themselves, the disciples, were Christians Christians. I mean, that that, that label wasn't thrown around, but they were followers of Jesus. Jesus had said already that their names were written in the book of life. They'd given their lives over to him in obedience and worship. They're Christians before Pentecost. And then they received the Spirit of God as the new covenant, the old covenant shifts to the new. The reality is it couldn't have happened any other way for them. And no one else straddles the two covenants like the first Christians did. And so we don't have a pattern here of, of um, New Covenant believers who are saved and then at some later point baptized with the Spirit. What we have is Old Covenant believers who transition to the New Covenant as believers and receive the Holy Spirit and are baptized. Peter, uh, sorry, Paul ex- explains what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He says, For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. What he's saying here is that all of the believers in the church of Corinth, in fact, all believers everywhere, when you got saved, you were baptized with the Holy Spirit as a sign of your inclusion into the people of God. And so what we see happening here is... One baptism, one baptism of the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. Now, if if you want to dig more on this, again, go back to our series on presence and power and look up the sermon on John 3 about regeneration and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where we unpack this more clearly. Having said that, there is something about this that is profoundly repeatable and we ought to expect. And that is, there are many subsequent fillings of the Spirit for the purpose of empowering people, God's people for mission. Just have a look at Acts chapter 4, verse 8, as Peter stands before the Sanhedrin, the very people that killed Jesus, and it says that, that he is filled with the Holy Spirit and boldly declares the gospel. You get to Acts chapter 4, verse 31, as they're sent away from the Sanhedrin, the church gathers to pray, and they ask for boldness to continue to speak the good news in the face of opposition. And it says they are filled with the Holy Spirit. The place where they were standing was shaken and they spoke the word of God boldly. Or you get to Acts chapter 7, verse 55, where Stephen is there giving a defense of the gospel to the Jews before he is killed. And he looks up full of the Holy Spirit and sees a vision of Jesus. Or you get to Acts chapter 13, verse 9, where Peter, where Paul, sorry, stares down Elymas the magician and full of the Holy Spirit calls him out. Consistently, time and time again, what you see happening in the book of Acts is that as the church attempts to 
speak the good news of the gospel, and as opposition arises, the Spirit of God fills God's people for the purposes of declaring that good news. As opposition arises and the church steps out in mission, the Spirit fills them time and time again. So what I think we have in the Scriptures is one baptism and many subsequent fillings of the Spirit. Because the mission of God is dependent on the Spirit's power to be achieved. But Peter's concern here is not so much about explaining this sign of tongues that they've seen. His real concern is explaining the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And so let's go. Let's continue the story in chapter 1, verse 22. I shouldn't have closed my Bible now. It's going to take me forever to find my spot. Chapter 1, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. You've seen it. You've seen the miracles of Jesus. You've seen what he did. You've seen what he did. Not you've seen what he did. You have seen what he did. God raised him. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. All let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And Peter Peter goes for it, does he not? That is Holy Spirit-empowered, bold declaration of the gospel. And it is bold. Right Here is this moment. And there are many moments of opportunity for the gospel if we would but see them and have the boldness to step into them. But Peter seizes a moment. What is the moment there? It's that they're mocked. Now, at that point, most of us tap out. We're like, hmm. This is getting a bit awkward. I'm just going to backtrack and say something nice and move the conversation on. Peter sees an opportunity. He takes it. The crowd is gathering. Thousands of people are gathering. They're in Jerusalem. The Roman and the Jewish rulers are already edgy about the missing body of Jesus and this rumor of a resurrection. All of that is in play. And Peter boldly stands up and he, pre- I mean, he throws, right? He accuses them of crucifying the Messiah. This is what the Spirit of God achieves in the life of Peter. Bold, 
faithful speaking of the good news of Jesus. And Peter's sermon there is really an exposition of a couple of Old Testament texts. Texts that point us forward to the Messiah, the promised one. That his resurrection was predicted. That the prophets spoke about it. And that they can know with confidence and certainty that Jesus, in fact, is that one. The first reference comes to us from Psalm 16. And the point there is that David was, he's, he's dead. Right? His, his tomb is there. You can go visit it. He cannot possibly be the one whom the promise was said, your, soul, your, your flesh will not decay. I will not let you decay in Hades. Right? So that promise has to be for someone else. Who fulfills that promise? Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? Good one. Thank you. Front row, yes. Right? The second reference comes to us from Psalm 110. And the point here that Peter is trying to make is that David didn't ascend to the Father's right hand. And yet there is this invitation for his son, the one that in 2 Samuel 7, the promise comes, I will put someone on your throne forever. And yet David doesn't sit on the throne. He doesn't ascend. And so who is this promises? promise about? Sunday school answer, Jesus. Peter is trying to show them from the witness of the Old Testament that this Christ whom you have been hoping for is Jesus and he rose again from the dead. He bears witness. The Old Testament bears witness. The apostles themselves are eyewitnesses of the resurrection. The resurrection is one of the key features of the apostolic gospel. They preached Jesus risen from the dead. That he reigns, that he rules, that he is risen, that he is king, that he is Lord and judge, that he is coming back. That is the feature of their gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus and church, far be it from us to stray from that gospel. That is the message that we have. That is the message that we proclaim to a world. Jesus died for your sin. Jesus rose again. They preach the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is what spirit-empowered speaking of the gospel looks like. Weak, frail, scared disciples boldly standing up and speaking of the risen Christ. You know, I posed that question at the start, that impossible hypothetical. What if God withdrew his spirit? What difference would it make to your life? Well, let's pose the opposite question. Let's pose the definite certainty. What if God has given you his spirit? What if God has given you his spirit? He has. That's why the apostles can do what they did. That's why the early church grew. That's why the good news goes to the ends of the earth. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 28, as he commissions the disciples, he says, Go. And surely I am with you always. That's the reason the apostles can do what they did. That Jesus was with them. That Jesus was empowering them by his spirit. A response to this profound moment here is that people are saved. So have a look at verse 37. Verse 37. Now when, that is the crowd, when they heard this, 
They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Man, the response is profound. People are cut to the heart, it says there. Now that's the Spirit's work. The conviction that people feel as Peter preaches the gospel is the Spirit at work through that message. What shall we do? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. Repent, turn away from your sin, come back to God. Be baptized as a sign of of the cleansing of your sins, of the fact that you have died with Christ and been raised again, that you are now included as your identity in Christ and you will receive the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes I think we're too satisfied to offer a gospel of forgiveness and repentance without offering the Spirit. Come to Jesus. God, He'll forgive your sins. Repent and turn away from your sins. But what about the gift of the Spirit? Why do we leave that off? You know, maybe it's that um, we don't see Christianity as being a radical following of Jesus in his mission. If we saw coming to faith as not just a moving from death to life, not just a forgiveness of sins, not just a turning away, but stepping into the mission of Jesus, then the Spirit becomes an obvious necessity. Because what what is happening here is Peter is calling them into the same thing that he's doing. Look at us. We followed Jesus. We believed in Jesus. We turned. We were baptized by John. He has filled us with the Spirit. We have powerfully proclaimed the gospel. Come and do the same. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. The Spirit is necessary for the mission of Jesus. That's the response. What about the result? The result on this day is 3,000 people are baptized and saved. 3,000 people. That's huge. Now, I've heard people downplay this moment, saying things like, well, it's not really that significant because Jesus kind of laid the groundwork. You know, he preached and he taught, and, uh, uh, you know, the apostles, Peter just rocks up and he preaches and, and, and he really reaps Jesus' harvest. All right, yes, that's true, but it still doesn't deny the fact that 3,000 people got saved in one message. That's every preacher's dream. And I wish 3,000 people got saved today. I wish three people got saved today, right? Every preacher longs to be used by God, that their words would be God's words, that people would be drawn into the kingdom. This is revival that breaks out here in Acts chapter 2. It's a significant moment. And the reason is... Not because Peter was eloquent. Not because he did a great expositional sermon of the Old Testament. The Spirit of God was at work. The Spirit of, and that means that because we have the same Spirit, the same thing can happen in our church, in our life, in our city. 
You know, maybe you're here this morning and you wouldn't identify yourself as a, a believer, a follower of Jesus. I want you to know that we believe this is real and certain. Do you see what Peter said there in, in um, chapter 2, verse 36? He said, Let all the house of Israel know, let everyone know for certain. Let everyone be clear without a shadow of a doubt that God made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. We believe this is real stuff. This isn't just a nice story. This isn't a psychological crutch to prop us up because we're weak people, weak as we are. This is the reality of history that the prophets pointed forward in their words that the eyewitness of the apostles saw that has been declared and written for us, that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, a physical, real, tangible, testable, historical resurrection. If you don't believe, we're not calling you to believe based on some subjective dream or we're calling you to assess the claims of Jesus. Like, do you hear what we're saying? Someone Re like really rose from the dead. Now, I realize how wildly outrageous that sounds and unscientific, and, but here's the thing. You prove that wrong, we're all done. Wrap up Anchor Church. Let's go snowboarding. Like Church is a lame hobby if it's not true, right? But if this is real, man, it changes everything. The message is this. God has vindicated his son by raising him from the dead and has made him both Lord and Christ. He is king. He is the promised one who has prophesied about for centuries that he would come. And in 2.21, it says there that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Saved how? Saved by faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That his blood was shed to forgive your sins, to wash you clean, to give you a fresh start. That is true. This morning, I hope is that is true for you personally. That you would believe that for yourself based on the evidence of the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection makes all of this, all of this, possible and real. All right, let's go. Last couple of things. Oh, man. Whew. All right, five minutes. Come on. Come on. All right, so here's the deal, right? The, the presence of the Spirit of God makes a significant difference in the apostles' lives, right? Significant difference. Why? Because they're clothed with power from on high. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the moment, Acts chapter 2 is the moment that Jesus was referring about that you would receive power. What kind of power? As you look through the book of Acts, you will see the power played out. It is the power to speak the good news of Jesus and occasionally it is the power to do miracles that accompany and verify that good news. The power to speak the good news of Jesus. The mission was in the first century and remains today a supernatural task that we cannot possibly do this ourselves. We need the Spirit to empower us for that. 
And really the power is not our own power because you cannot take a hard heart, a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. You cannot take someone who's blind and gift them sight. That is the Spirit's work. He convicts. He gives life. And He works through us. That's why Paul would say in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of of God for salvation for everyone who believes. That's why I can say to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, because our gospel came to you not in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you will receive power. And they did. They did receive power. Power to boldly declare the good news. The result was that they spoke, that the Spirit convicted, that people got saved and baptized. The church grew by 3,000 people. But let's not overlook this final point. That Peter, just a few days prior to this, in fact, 50 days to be precise, was standing before a nobody, a servant girl around a fire. She said to him, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And he cowered in fear and denied Jesus. He was weak. He was timid. His faith was shaky. And yet he stands with great boldness and proclaims the good news. What is the difference? The difference is that God pours his spirit out, empowers him to declare Jesus. Paul says that it's actually in my weakness. It's in my weakness that God makes me strong. And so I will boast of my weakness because it magnifies and highlights God's strength. And in this weird God-like paradox, because that's kind of how God works, weakness is the prerequisite for this power. But my fear is, church, that sometimes we focus on our inability, on our weakness as frail, sinful, weak humans, and we do not magnify the power of God, that the Spirit has been poured out with power to declare the good news. And you, church, have the same Holy Spirit that Jesus received. You have the same Holy Spirit that the apostles received. He is not different. He does not change. He is the same from now to the end. You might say, well, I don't know how to defend my faith when opposition comes, well, isn't the promise of the Holy Spirit that He would give us the words in Luke 12? But what if I'm afraid? Well, isn't the promise of the Spirit that He would make us bold? But what if I get it wrong? Isn't the promise of the Spirit from John 16 that He will guide us into truth? But what if I feel outnumbered? Isn't the promise that I will be with you always to the ends of the age? You have the same Spirit of God. And God's plan and purpose is to use His church. The church is His primary mission strategy for the world, filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit to declare the death and resurrection of Jesus. And He's going to use you. The aim that Luke has in writing the book of Acts is to show you that the good news of the gospel, it is unstoppable as it goes to the ends of the earth. Nothing can come against the Spirit empowering the church. Nothing can halt Jesus' plan, His mission of building His church. And all of that takes place as God empowers weak, timid, afraid people and uses them 
as his ambassadors, his mouthpiece, his voice to a city and a culture that so desperately needs to hear Jesus. Church, God wants to use you. He wants to use me. My question for you this week is what step of boldness, what step of boldness is God asking you to take today? It doesn't have to be big. Like, don't go get a milk crate and stand up on King Street and start, like, right? But what if it's just a little step of boldness, a little step of faith, trusting that God might use our words in some way? Let me pray. We thank you, God, that you have poured out your spirit. We thank you that your promises are true. That when you said you would not leave us as orphans, Jesus, you haven't. We thank you that the mission that you have called us into is not something that we achieve on our own, but that you have empowered us for this. Forgive us, Lord, for the times we think that this is about us, about our strength. We focus on our weakness instead of your power. We pray that you would powerfully remind us that we are your people to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Use us, Lord, by the power of your spirit to transform this city for your glory. We prayed in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen.